Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.fm. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers, and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us. We'll give you the first 30 days no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget. Or we finish the project at no extra cost. Contact us at onestop.fm. Let's talk about your SaaS project today. Our guest today is David Rosa, fintech entrepreneur and CEO, co-founder of Neat, Asia's alternative to a traditional bank account for startups and SMEs. David started his career at Citibank, then co-founded the Asian arm of Integral, Capital Management, which he sold in 2014 to focus on NEAT. David will be sharing how he came up with the idea, how he funded it, how, he's, how he built his MVP and gained his first customers to navigate his 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. How are you today, David? I'm doing great, Jordy. Thanks uh, for having me here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So why don't you give us a quick rundown on what NEAT does and what specific problem you solve for your customers? Sure. The problem we solve is basically the fragmentation that there is in the payment networks, in fact, the many payment networks that there are across different parts of the world. So this fragmentation is normally taken care of by large banks uh, and the consumers, the customers that these uh, large banks have are typically large corporates themselves. In fact, most of the time, it's really multinational corporations. I used to work in a large bank, as you mentioned, and you know, made my career serving these type of customers. Nothing wrong with that in that sense. However, when you are an SME, like a small medium enterprise, let's say in one country, um, I don't know, Germany, for example, and you have suppliers in another, let's say China, you have to pull literally acrobatic acts to connect those payments. And then you open a neat account to carry it all. So that's the, the pain point that we, we really solve. So are, when you say connecting, are you talking about like making corporate wires or are you talking about moving like just basically move, moving, having different payment country customers speak between uh, the different countries. It's really, so first of all, let's talk about the persona, the customer that we have, which is traditionally a small B to small B company, right? So this is a small company having another small company or several small companies as customers. They mm-hmm. typically uh, use the internet to sell whatever it is, either goods or mm-hmm. services. And yep. the internet brings you everywhere in the world. The, that's great. The issue with that is that on the back of those goods or services being sold, you have money that needs to move. And that money, first of all, needs to be collected from those customers. And today, the power is with the ultimate customer. And therefore, power is to you know, be able to offer those end customers the ability for them to pay you locally, whichever jurisdiction they are. I used the example of Germany before. It could be anywhere around the world in the most efficient local way that there is to pay and more often than not what you have these days is you know 24 7 real-time payment systems or also known as faster payments that are free of charge as well so if you enable these small businesses to collect money from their own customers around the world 
in those manners, that's a huge win because you can collect much faster as well. And that's where it starts. And then that's one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, you typically have a supplier, especially if you're talking about goods. Uh, in the world of goods, you have supply chains. Most of supply chains lead you to China. And yeah. China's a country that, I don't know if you can call it still an emerging market these days. It's a hot topic to debate, but it has capital controls, which is typically yeah. a feature of an emerging market. And to pay those suppliers in countries which have capital controls, it is uh, not a small feat. And so you need to be able to seamlessly collect that money at one end of the the globe, if you will, and then disperse it seamlessly to your supplier in China just as seamlessly. And that's ultimately a huge pain point for these small companies because banks don't support them for that. Okay. Because I used to be an e-commerce provider and I used to, you know, I'm very familiar with the the process of, of purchasing inventory in China. You would... When I was thinking back, when I, w- I would make a wire from a U.S. bank or, say, European bank, and it would have to go to, let's say, like a Hong Kong dollar account, because I, I believe I wasn't allowed to send in, in yuan, right? And so a lot of people would were, would have a, the Chinese vendors would have a bank in, in Hong Kong, and we would send in U.S. dollars or Hong Kong dollars. Is that specifically the, the type of problem that you're solving? Originally, that's what it was. It, it's evolved a lot more. In fact, to illustrate yeah. the, the point of why, why are banks so challenged, because, you know, to, to the non-trained or somebody who has not been really experiencing these pain points, you may wonder, you know, what's the big deal? Well, the big yeah. deal is perhaps best put by Marvin King, who's uh, one of the former uh, governors of the Bank of England, who coined a term which, uh, which was, actually, it's a whole sentence, uh, which is banks are global in life, but local in death which is a really interesting way of putting it because what it means is that a bank ultimately is a banking license, right? Mm -hmm. And licenses are a very local proposition. And so to basically enable your customers to behave like locals around the world, you, if you are to be a bank, you need to have banking licenses around the world. And that's not small feat, right? That's that's a huge endeavor, very, very capital intensive. So banks really are challenging that unless they are global, large, as they know, money center banks, but those banks serve the big customers, the multinational corporations that don't serve the SMEs. So mm-hmm. you have this complete fragmentation of the market. Um, on the one hand, you have the internet that enables you to be very global. But at the other, mm-hmm. the other end of the spectrum, you need to move that money behind those goods and services. And that's really not global yet. Okay. So give me an example of who your customer are. Are they small local banks or are they actual like merchants and providers? They're merchants. You know, the personas okay. that we have are, you know, import, export type of businesses. Importers typically tend to be in Europe amongst our customer base. Exporters tend to be in Asia. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So give me some, uh, you maybe talk about selling the company. How, how did that come about? Um, you your last company in 2014, how did, how did that, uh, maybe we can start with that. Sure. So, in fact, we can start a little bit earlier still, 2008, if you remember those okay. days, uh, the global I sure financial do. crisis. Basically, uh, just picture this. I was working at, you know, City, a very large global bank, which was very involved in this, you know, global financial crisis. And together with the rest of my team, uh, forget me for a second, uh, the rest of the team was definitely super talented. I had this you know, group of super talented people frantically compiling spreadsheets until 2 or 3 a.m. Hong Kong time to report risk to headquarters, mm-hmm. which was New York. And, you know, you do it once, you do it twice. And like the whole point was, you know, if you remember Lehman Brothers going under, there's all yeah. sorts of, you know, contagion in, in, in the market. 
And so knowing your counterparty risk, as it were, was extremely important. Problem is that there was no one single system where the CEO of the company could press a button and actually say, okay, so what's my exposure to XYZ right now? None, mm. right? So what you had is, you know, again, very talented people, you know, compiling spreadsheets, which were sent to, to headquarters. And by the time it reached headquarters, because it wasn't only that our department was the whole, you know, every, every department of the bank doing that. By the time it reached headquarters, it was out of date. So it was like driving a car looking in the rear view mirror, right? Like, you know what's mm-hmm. going to happen yeah, next. Yeah, yeah. And so I started, you know, once I managed to catch a breath, I started reaching out to my peers in other banks, and I figured out that every single institution was doing the same thing. And at that point, I thought, I thought okay, technology really, really, really sucks, right, in these banks, because yeah. how could you have these kind of siloed sets of information and, and, and not have a centralized plan? And, and, and then I learned that there was obviously very good reasons for that, but then... You know, who cares? At the end of the day, it is about having instant gratification in terms yeah. of data. So data and the whole architecture of data within a financial institution was a huge pain point. I realized that it really disenchanted me, very frankly, for being in, in, in the industry uh, and participating in that. On the other hand, I also remember as running a business uh, that I would, you know, every single time there was a new business opportunity, we had to run this by compliance. And compliance is typically this very antagonistic kind of dynamic where uh, they would give you the easiest answer in the world, which is no. Whatever you want to do, no, cannot do. And then when we asked why, it was oh, because of regulations. And, and I could never really get my head around which regulations exactly and why these, these you know, regulations would not allow a new business to happen. Until I eventually you know, had an opportunity to go and set up my own asset management business. That's the 2014 example you mentioned. Mm-hmm. where I got very deep into compliance. I became what's known as a responsible officer here in Hong Kong, which is the, the most senior compliance title you can have, on purpose to really interact with the regulator directly and understand you know, what, what those regulations were all about. And you know, lo and behold, there's very good reasons for the regulations to be there, though they typically have been reactive. So something has gone wrong in the world and then regulation caught up. And so what you had as a result is like this catch-up type of, you know, uh, dynamic happening with very poor technology and so compliance has become this bottleneck which you know typically people would throw their arms up in the air and say oh my god you know every time I have to deal with compliance I always get a no as an answer and that's a clear pain point and to, to pain points there's opportunity right mm, and there's solutions right. you can find so technology and compliance was really the two or the two ingredients that really gave me the motivation to then hook up with somebody who actually knew something about you know, technology, because I didn't. I'm a Fin mm-hmm. guy as part of FinTech. Um, yeah. And that's Igor, my co-founder, and is the CTO of, of Need. And, uh, and we, we hooked up in 2015, originally. Um, okay. I ended up then selling my asset management business to focus entirely on FinTech together with Igor, and we, we founded Need. Okay. So, so the asset management was was a uh, a fund that you had you had raised and you decided to sell it because you saw was were you was it that you didn't want to continue with that or or was it you were more interested in the um, solving this this techno technological problem of of uh, in in compliance as you mentioned it's both uh, on the one hand I have to tell you candidly it's so hard to scale an asset management business. It's really, uh-huh. really hard. Either you have billions, literally billions under management, or you just go home, right? Um, really? And uh, th- that's been our experience. Uh, I'm not talking venture capital type of asset management. This was more like, this was distressed commercial real estate, by the way. So a lot of, uh, a lot of that was happening um, in, you know, back in, in Europe. This was right. uh, you know, 2012, 13, 14, where uh, if you remember, that was the first wave of the Eurozone crisis. 
So there's yes. a lot of like commercial real estate, like shopping malls, retail parks, hotels that would just go through yeah. fire sales. Uh, it was really yeah. interesting, but then you need to scale that and it was really hard. So uh, I had the opportunity to actually find a buyer for the whole thing. And I hit the bid as, <laughs> as it's known as a trade yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sold the whole portfolio. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's good. So, so you have you have a bit of cash, and you and Igor decided to set up this problem, solve this problem in compliance. Uh, can Can you specifically tell me, like, what were the first steps you did? You know, sure, talk to sure. me about. Was Igor? He's a developer then. He's a software engineer by background. Absolutely, he was doing the development okay. himself. On the, and what was the stack? What did you decide on for the stack? So Ruby was the main, you know, uh, platform that we, we used. There was also some JavaScript that we, we started, you know, uh, using, especially in the front end. That those were really the, the foundations. We started the journey from a compliance point of view, where everything starts in, in compliance, which is KYC, right? The know your customer yeah. process. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a nightmare. So, yeah. yeah, but an opportunity as well, right? Which yeah, is what of we, what we if you can we, simplify you know, that. Yeah. yeah, it's a huge opportunity. So. That's what we decided to, to invest resources uh, on, uh, so much so that we, we basically uh, were the first ones in Hong Kong to bring out a fully compliant, fully digital KYC process. We uh -huh. won an award, actually, from the Hong Kong government. This was three years ago they gave us the award. And okay. they also gave us two patents for the method and process that we used to do that. So that okay. was interesting because we all of a sudden had something that you know, was solid. Um, and we, we started going to market with uh, that technology to consumers, actually, mm. simply because it was really, really, really hard to find early adopters. Um, okay. You may or may not know this, but Hong Kong is traditionally an extremely conservative place, actually. People think Hong Kong is super entrepreneurial. Yeah, it used to be. Right? Like, yeah. you know, in, in, it used to be like, when? You're talking about like in the 1990s or? Oh, earlier than that. I, I would yeah. say 1960s, 1970s, 1980s even. But then, but then it really got conservative. Why? Because a few, because you never really hear about the, 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 the failures. You hear about the success stories like Li Ka-shing and, you know, the, the few other mega tycoons that you have in Hong Kong. They clearly, yeah. you know, got it right. They got lucky as well. Right place, right time. But then they really executed very well. And there's an enormous amount of wealth that got created around those, those families and uh, very, very quickly. And the yeah. byproduct of that is that the society became from like risk-taking, very entrepreneurial, you know, got to make ends meet, to, whoa, let's make sure that our children, grandchildren and grand-grandchildren will never, ever, ever have to experience this kind of hardship. And so okay. you cocoon the entire society yeah. in terms of, okay. of, you know, appetite for risk or, or lack thereof. And so you, you then had an environment where, you know, to find early adopters for, for a solution was really hard. Let me give you an example. So we had, you know, owned the, the, the MVP, as it were, minimum viable product for this, you know, app. And it was a prepaid MasterCard uh, that you could get. So this replaced basically the bank account, as it were, the current account, to be specific, uh, for consumers. And, and it was pretty smooth. I, I was showcasing this app to, you know, acquaintances of mine in their late 30s or early 40s. And... They look at the apps, oh, that's cool. Oh, like, look at that facial recognition, all this. This is great, David. They would push the phone back to me on the table and say, you know what? I know it's free, but when everyone else is using it, I'm going to pay you money to use it. So I see. How, yeah. how, can you, <laughs> how can you develop an early adopter type of you know, ecosystem uh, with that kind of mindset? And eventually, you've know, you got to do what you got to do. And, and, and we ended up finding that, that early adopter uh, persona in university students. 
because uh, okay. they were the ones who had time to talk to us. They were the ones who had time to try stuff. And yeah, it was free, so why not? Yeah. And, and so this was really, really helpful because it really helped us polish the product um, and, and really go to market with it. The problem was that the very same asset that the students had, which is time, turned out to be a liability for, uh, for you know, the, the product to really hit product market fit. Why? Because again, students, the biggest asset they had was that they had time. You, you mm-hmm. need to realize also that each and every university, or university students here in Hong Kong, each university has at least one bank branch, right? And so uh-huh. because they had time, it was not a pain point to go down the branch, right? And, and so clearly uh, our solution see, removed okay. the need to go to the branch. In fact, going down to the branch, you may actually hook up with a girlfriend, with a boyfriend, who knows, right? Like okay, it's, it's yeah. a social thing. Uh-huh. So actually our app was a nice to have to them. And, okay. and that, was, that was a problem, right? Because, okay. you know, you, you really want to have pain points. And, and, um, and time went by, uh, and, but, but very quickly, word spread. And where we found the product market fit eventually for that consumer product was with early employees, so young professionals that were shipped to Hong Kong for training or moved you know, across jurisdictions. And they had a nightmare opening a bank account, even actually employees of banks because they moved from the UK, US, you know, some parts of the emerging Asia, they were not residents in Hong Kong just yet. Okay. And, and so we're having a nightmare, you know, having an account where they could actually get their salary paid into, imagine that, right? So we, we quickly got um, a product market fit with, with that ecosystem, but guess what? It's a very shallow market. There's not that many, right? Uh, uh, yeah. that, that kind of customer. Mm-hmm. But then what happened is that within the first 12 months of them, you know, starting that job, very quickly, we noticed that the transactions they were doing on those MasterCards were not like consumer type of transactions. They were online subscriptions, some you know storage like cloud storage, uh, some business related type of travel. What looked like you know, and we started asking like, what, what are you guys doing with, with this, this, these cards? And, and they said, well, actually, great that you mentioned because you know we're running a, a basically what's a side hustle, right? Like mm-hmm. an e-commerce type of business uh, in the evenings because they were quite disenchanted working for large corporations. And so they were running this, this uh, side hustle and, and they, they asked us more than once, like, could you actually do something that you're doing for us personally for our business? And you hear it once, you hear it twice, you hear it three times. And, and we listen, right? And we, we, mm-hmm. we pivoted effectively the business to, to an SME solution, which is where we really started growing. Oh. So that, that's the journey. Okay, that, so that sounds quite. That sounds interesting. Uh, can we go back to the the KYC part because that sounds like it could be quite interesting. But you did you specifically have that knowledge because you you, you mentioned that you got quite high up in in the um, area of compliance. But that sounds like you would need to get some regulatory sort of advice and. Uh, someone as an authority, you know, in in sort of government is. Uh, how did you solve or or find information in that? Because it's, I, th- I think, it would be quite different according to the jurisdictions and. Yeah. So actually, one of the benefits in Hong Kong is that you you have pretty much in terms of like regulatory everything's online, everything's bilingual, if not trilingual, and you can find the information. What turned out to be the issue, which has actually been the issue globally, is the interpretation of how you know, those regulations should be you know, brought to life. And more often than not, you had, had to have, because some incumbents continue to do that, the comfort zone of just doing things 
the same way, just because they've been done this way for the last 10, 20 years, so you don't want to change it. Which meant that, you know, you needed to meet people face to face and ask them for a signature, even worse, I would say, for a business here, you have a concept of a chops, think of it as a stamp with the name and perhaps the logo even of the company. You'd had to use that chop and, and, you know, God forbid if the signature did not match the signature that was on record because then, you know, you had to go down the branch and update the, uh, you know, signature on record. So there's all this kind of paperwork, analog processes that, yeah, they work to the extent that you actually had the time and the opportunity to go and meet those people face to face, which you typically don't when you're running a, a young business. So it was all down to this interpretation. And, and when, when we started asking questions, we got legal opinions. It was clear to us that you could actually have, again, on a, what's known as a risk-based approach, you know, a, a corporate governance uh, around our company that allowed us to basically onboard customers with some limits, right? Like, you know, mm. the more verification you did, the higher the limits that they would get. And that was, that was um, legitimate. And so that's how we eventually got this award by, by the, the, the Hong Kong government as well. Okay, so how was it? How, how were you funding yourself in the early days when you were with with the students? You said it was difficult to get users. Were you funding yourself from the sale of your asset management group, or how was that going? Yeah, so uh, it was definitely bootstrapped, uh, and yours truly was basically bankrolling the, the entire operation, which uh, uh-huh. I would not want to do again. Uh, yeah. But let, let me put it into context. So I, I often tell people, and I really mean it, uh, there are two ideal times to get involved in a startup, as in running your own startup. I think the first one is when you're fresh from school. Uh, why? It's because, yeah, you may not have any money, but chances are that you can still crush out other mumbo dads and, and or, you know, some kind of family type of ecosystem will, will cover you with a roof above your head. And you don't really have much to lose, right? That's right. So, well, that and it doesn't cost that much to live either, does it? You know, you could even if you weren't living with mom and dad, you could, you know, get in an apartment for fifteen hundred a month or something. You know. Yeah, though Hong Kong, it's a bit of a different story. But yeah, you're right that you're, you're right that it's, there's there's ways. There's a will. There's a way yeah, right, to do it. That's and again, right. the point being that there's not a lot of downside, and you may just lack out, right? So the, yeah. it's, it's it's a law of numbers as well. So. I strongly encourage you know students that I I, I, uh, I do at least twice a year some sessions on like you know coaching uh, from from a corporate angle startup angle. By the way, there's no right or wrong. It depends on you know wh- where you're in, in your life, what, what is it that you want or you don't want. And, and so that's the first time. Nothing much to lose, if anything. The second time is I guess my situation where I spent you know 20 years in the industry, earned a few bonuses on the way, have a savings account. And you can afford uh, to lose something. Hopefully, you don't lose it all. Uh, yeah. But you can basically, you know, um, have cash burn for several years to, to to provide you air cover. And that's very much again the situation that I was in. The rest of the company was in, uh, but it wasn't pleasant <laughs> because you know you have problems after problems, and you have no real visibility on where it is that you're going to be able if it's to. Going to you know, yeah. yeah. If it's if it's even going to succeed, and your wife is asking you like, what's what's going on? When's when's the income going to start coming in? Yep. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so how much did the MVP cost? I mean, what, tell me about the MVP. Igor was doing it. I presume uh, maybe he was giving you a break or he didn't charge anything um but how, tell me about talk to me about the mvp like how long did it take was it started just as an app and then you you kind of did some server-side um yeah. app applications 
Uh, yeah, so we, we, it really was an app, right? It was a mobile app as a, uh, as a starting point. It's interesting because today actually the main um, you know, flagship product is, 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 is a dashboard, that's a web dashboard because companies, SMEs, especially when they have multiple employees and multiple departments, they actually tend to pr you know, prefer to have a web-based application rather than, uh, than pure mobile. But yeah, we started as a, as, a, um, as a pure mobile app and yeah, Igor was coding. We had a, a very small, but we had some developers we scrap deals, uh, you know, we get some equity in, in exchange of, of software and, uh, you know, we, we were very scrappy. It cost us just over 700,000 US dollars to really get okay. going. Uh, okay. So, you know, uh, That's no, significant for yeah. an MVP. It must have been quite yeah. robust, I would think. Yeah, but, you know, we, we had to abide by regulations. We, you know, we're, okay, touching, that's we're why. touching customers' money, right? Like, it was... Yeah, this, yeah. Uh, so, so it's really, you're, you have to pay for security. And yes. um, you mentioned some facial uh, facial recognition technology. Was that in the MVP or was that afterwards? It was uh, It was in the MVP, actually. And a lot of it, actually, we developed ourselves. And, and then the market really boomed in that space. So there's so many third-party applications you can actually, you know, go and connect uh, to these yeah. days. But yeah, we, we tried to do as much as we could, quote unquote, in-house without burning too much. But yeah, as, as you can tell, it's not, it's not like a, a humongous number compared to, say, what a bank and, and a license for a bank would entail. But uh, it was not small, especially when you're, when, you, when you're bankrolling it personally. And it took us just no. over 12, 12 months, yeah. basically, to, to, okay. uh, to really be you know, in the market with the product. 12 months now, why was it, you know, because I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs that bootstrap and, and they come out, you know, the range of an MVP is anywhere from 10,000 to, you know, 200,000. So 700,000 is definitely on the high side. I understand it's for banking, but where was most of that spend going to? Is it to, um, for security, to high level programmers? Where was that? Where was it going? Oh, ultimately salaries, right? Like uh, that okay. was, you know, we started uh, hiring uh, developers, uh, UX, uh, specialist customer support. <laughs> you know, you, you okay. start, those fixed costs were the ones that really just uh, were, were, were heavy. Uh, plus, you know, all the infrastructure that we needed to, to have and the deposits with the partners, right? Like okay. nobody's going to do business with you without having some collateral somewhere. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. So you 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 completed your MVP. You're having some problems um, finding adapters. Went to the universities. You got some students. When did things sort of start to sort of pick up for you and and start at least being able to pay yourself back? So when we pivoted into the SME space, that's where really um, we we started seeing a major change in landscape. First of all, uh, the growth in itself, the product, and um, then also investors. So we started having VCs, you know, the, in fact, one, the original VC that the guys were crazy enough to, to write us the first check in the seed round. The, their name was Diamond Asia Ventures, they're now called the Integra Capital Partners. Uh, in Singapore, by the way, not in Hong Kong. That's, a, that's another topic we can talk about, how difficult it was to, to raise money here in, in, in uh, where we were headquartered. Um, that pivot really made a, uh, a major change uh, on every single metric. Uh, so very, very happy to have, have to, uh, to do that. Why? Because the pain point is so much deeper. Uh, it's a yeah. much bigger pain point. It's a lot more monetizable as a result as well. 
And how did you discover it? Was it just you organically these users are coming into your app and you would start seeing some activity and then you started to approach them? Or how did you find that pivot? Was it going out and doing customer feedback surveys? So it's quite a story, okay? So first of all, yes, we, we had, as I was mentioning before, our you know, young professionals were running the side hustle and asking us to, to do a, a, an SME solution. So the, when we, yeah. sorry, when we, we realized that uh, there was a, a huge pain point, so not a big one, a huge one, is actually where our first banking partner closed our bank account. So that, that, was, that was a very difficult, but very, very telling experience. So let me, let me tell you the story here. It's, it's quite, quite interesting, I think, from an entrepreneurial point of view. This was early 2019. So we had been in the market for, you know, with the SME product for over a year. And we were really growing fast, right? So these were, again, these small B to small B e-commerce customers, mostly in this Europe to China corridor. Both customer numbers, uh, you know, monthly active users, transaction volumes, growing at an average of 35% every month, right? So we're talking about fantastic growth in, in our yeah. business. Yeah. Until our banking partner told us that they couldn't handle this kind of growth and that they were going to close our bank account. That's not, first of all, that, that's not fun, right? We, we no. almost, well, why, we, why couldn't they handle it, though? I don't understand. But what, because, what bank okay. doesn't want more money coming in? Yeah. So, but it, it's, I understand. I understand the, the, the mindset. So this goes back again to the pain point and opportunity there is in compliance. See, these are large banks, right? And um, their customer base traditionally are, as I mentioned before, large corporates or multinational large, okay. corporations, right? Yeah. At the heart of a compliance department, what you have is something called the financial crime compliance team. Uh, this is the team and the systems around that team that basically monitor the transactions that are going through the bank's pipes to basically you know, pluck out the bad apples. Because guess what? You touch money, likely at some point you're gonna be touching you know, financial crime, right? So whether it's fraudsters uh, or worse, money launder, people traffickers, drug traffickers, there's all sorts, especially in, in cross-border type of payments. And this is extremely serious. This is why you need to have you know, a very, very robust corporate governance overall. Now, yeah. these transaction monitoring rules and processes that the banks have in place, the big banks have in place, are designed around the typology of customers that they have. And those customers, again, are large corporations with very predictable, very stable type of cash flows. When you look at the cash flows of an SME, I mean, any entrepreneur will know, right? That it's the most unpredictable thing is your cash flow, right? It's, it's, it's really hard to predict. And so it is completely incompatible with those transaction monitoring systems. And what it does is that it ends up clogging up the pipeline on these financial uh, crime departments because they need to then deploy humans to go and investigate what the system is telling them, look, this looks like irregular activity, go and investigate. And so they're very finite resources. And, and I understand this because they then look at this customer base as not generating that much revenue per customer compared to the large customers that they have. And so it's a business choice ultimately, right? Like, why would you want to go and deploy these resources for revenue that's marginally not that attractive for a big bank? And so bye-bye. And so... At that point, so again, first of all, we almost died as a business, right? So that was yeah, like, you, you, know, have no, you have no bank. And correct. So no, yeah, okay. So, but then we realized this, that if SME customers badly needed this type of service, again, collecting money in one jurisdiction, deploying the, the, you know, disbursing the money in another to pay their suppliers, because, well, 
it's easy for them to set up the business to sell those goods, let's say, on the internet, mm -hmm. but then moving yeah. the money, the banks will not support them for it, again, because they're mm -hmm. just too small, right? So on the yeah. one hand, we see these SMEs badly need a service. And then when a company like us actually goes and serves these customers, and then the bank pulls the plug on us as well, you gotta believe that like this is a huge pain huge point. Problem. Yeah, right? yeah. So yeah. not only did we survive this, right, but we came back even stronger with big names as shareholders. We got Visa to invest in us, we got Mass Mutual, and then Pacific Century Group out here. And and really uh -huh. we we completely retackled this this this, um, this issue with multiple partners. Uh, with an even more robust uh, corporate governance. But man, that was quite a journey. So when you asked me, when did you realize the pain point was big? Well, that's when, when I realized. When, when the okay, first bank so I want to know more about it, though. This sounds like a very... So you said multiple partners. That means multiple banks. So you yes. have backup. You have redundancy on that. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Okay, so talk to me about this time when the bank says, okay, you get the email and says, hey, we have a, we have a problem, guys. We can't service all these new... Uh, these new you know, clients of yours, the KYC is too much for us. Is that was that the reason? The, the transaction monitoring technique is speaking. Okay, yes. yeah, exactly. So um, the fraud, the fraud, so yes. the fraud detection. Okay. Yes. And so then, what did you do? You just like, oh my god, and what did you do? Like, go walk down to your local bank, or how did you, how did you solve this problem? So you know, you regroup. Uh, you you really you know, go deep into why do we even exist. Right? Because yeah. frankly, it was a huge existential issue, right? Because yeah. uh, you otherwise would leave just just pack it up, right? Why why would you bother? Yeah. And and when we realized that the reason why we were existing is to really the, the the tagline at the time was to enable the entrepreneurial economy, and you know, true to entrepreneurial spirit, you realize this is just not on, right? Like, why is the system, you know, basically rigged against us? Re exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so so it became even more of a mission. Um, yeah. and, and, and we, we you know, went back, I went back to my board of uh, directors, we had some VC investors uh, by that time, thank God, by the way, because otherwise okay. I think it would have been the end. And, and pitched, pitched really hard uh, about this, this um, you know, uh, ultimately what's, what's a, a passion, right? And uh, I guess it resonated and we, we, we went out and, and raised more money. On, that was challenging, by the way, because we're not growing, we're like completely yeah. flatlining. In fact, we were losing customers because you know some customers. Because you had no, right? you had no bank, right? You had no. Yeah. Sort of, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Initially, we, we we couldn't open any new accounts, and then eventually we had to exit that that bank. And so you know, yeah. so imagine this: you're like on a plane that's taken off, and it's like gaining altitude, and all of a sudden, like an engine and a half stopped working, and you're losing yeah. altitude real fast, and you gotta have to change those engines in midair. So yeah, uh, yeah. so that's you know classic entrepreneurial story, I guess. <laughs> but you know. It was, it was yeah. hairy. It was extremely hairy and learned, learned tons. But it really it went back to the core mission and, and, and what is it that we stand for. And mm -hmm. it's just, I, I feel even more strongly, right, after this entire experience because it's just a natural evolution of, of what the, the financial world needs to adapt to, to a new normal. And then COVID hit, by the way. So everything went digital, right? Oh, um, uh, yeah. So. Yeah. So specifically, it sounds like the VCs were were able to really help. You mentioned um, the VCs. You said, "Thank God, we had the VCs. Uh, they fund you." So, so you had some runway to solve this problem. And then, how did you specifically solve it? Was it like, did you? Where was the, the bank? The first bank that let you um, sure um, well, operate this way? 
Yeah, we, we, we basically had to pull every single string that we could in terms of relationships. It did help that I had you know, 20 years of experience in the industry, just you know, by uh -huh. knowing people. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and eventually started rebuilding not only those relationships, it's the integrations, right? You realize this, the entire stack is designed basically right. primarily around, around one, one requirement, yeah. right? And so yeah. I had to completely re-platform, uh, which means that you lose a lot of product velocity in this. Let yeah. me tell you, that, that's, not, that's not pretty. And, uh, but eventually, you know, just didn't crash, right? Came close, mm -hmm. but, yeah. uh, and, and then just rebuilt. And, uh, and again, much, much more mature, much stronger. I'm actually really proud to have gone through something like this and having survived because it is not easy to especially also motivate your team. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And how long was this period that you were sort of, when, when you first got the notification to you were back sort of up and running uh, and, and all the APIs were synced and everything you could... Uh, it's, it's really like 15 months all in all. Uh, nine months okay. really to, to kind of find uh, the, the, the new partners. It takes a long time to develop banking yeah. relationships, you know? Um, and, uh, and 15 months to really have, you know, to be kind of back to where you left off type of thing. And, okay. and then you have new challenges, of course, right? Right. So, but you were able to, you were, how were you even able to operate then with, I mean, was there any customers that were able to use your platform if you had no so yeah, underlying so there was, bank? Yeah. There was, there was a core, so first of all, we, we begged for lack of a better word, to the bank to just yeah. let a core group of customers that they were comfortable with okay. uh, operate. Uh, okay, so uh, you were able to, I see, so you just weren't able to take on new customers. You could keep a core base of the yes. ones that, the, but, that but, but, they but, were approved of. Correct, but but lost a whole bunch. And, and you can imagine the reviews, yeah. the, the NPS scores, like, you know, the, that, that's yeah. just ugly. But um, yeah. we managed to, 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 you know, I feel really horrible for, for the, these very early adopters that we had. We managed nevertheless to, to keep a core you know, part of the customer base alive. And uh, some of them are still with us and continue. In fact, they've grown a lot during COVID, which is a real pleasure uh, to see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so when did that, when that happened, were you coming out of the tail end of that? Is that when COVID hit? It was before that. It was, uh, yeah, maybe five, four or five months before COVID started. Because okay. COVID so you started, started, here, you, start, right? so, you started to gain some traction and yes. then COVID hit. I imagine the first couple of months of COVID, it was, you know, we were like, oh my God, what's happening? Is this another global financial crisis? Or Yeah, although volumes were picking up a lot. The, they were. So a lot, a lot of people, you know, reverted to online uh, uh -huh. ways of doing business, even if it were to, to, be, to be traditional. But then again, you know, big crisis, big opportunity for the fraudsters as well, right? So a lot more suspicious kind of activity coming through because people were just doing whatever it took to make, make a buck, right? In, in this yeah. So it was really challenging, yeah. really challenging. Yeah. And how was, how did COVID, how was your COVID period? Did that, was that sort of a, an area of big growth for you then? So in terms of volumes, absolutely. Uh, we grew 5X during, during uh -huh. you know, 2020, basically. And so that was, you know, really interesting because it just pushes you and the team and the processes right to, to a whole new level. And... The biggest challenge was actually the team, to manage the team, because remember that we're headquartered in Hong Kong, and although we, we also have a London office, the majority of the staff is, is here, right? Mm -hmm. And we had the protests in the street. Yeah, that's uh, right. And, and it was so, it was, we had the protests, and then we had COVID. So it was really, the hardest part of that was to just keep the team motivated and focused. Focused, mm -hmm. really, is the, is yeah. the, uh, the key word. 
Yeah. And tell me about the um, some of the co- the competition that's come up. Is is that? I mean, who are some of your top competitors? So there's two types. There's some banks that uh, that are uh, a bit more modern, though they tend to again look at larger type of customers. And then you have mm-hmm. what we call the online challengers, right? So you have big names in the market like Air Wallex, uh, out here in, in Asia. In Europe, you'd have names like Revolut, yeah. TransferWise. Uh-huh. And they do SME, um, you know, they provide an SME uh, solution. Though typically that SME solution is very focused on the B2C type of um, okay. market, whereas we focus on the B2B. Okay, so uh, that's what I was thinking of. I was wondering if Revolut and TransferWise were some of your some of your competition. I just saw today Revolut valued at a thirty three billion value, you know valuation, obviously growing very fast. Do you see? Do you foresee? Is that going to be eating into your market share, or or do you think that they're they're going to be you know more focused on the B two C? Well, first of all, huge kudos to both Revolut and TransferWise, who also IPO'd not so long ago, right? So they're, you know, TransferWise is a decacorn in U.S. dollar terms, and Revolut is like three times that, which is just wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, 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 well done, guys, kind of thing. Yeah. The other is that both companies, if you're looking at those names, they have a very hybrid type of product. They have a consumer solution, which is extremely strong, actually. And then they also have the SME solution. So from what we can tell so far, the, the strategy is really to, when they go to new markets, to really start with the consumer, which makes sense, right? Like you have a much yeah. bigger number of, of users and from there grow. And in the meantime, uh, you know, we continue to execute. So uh, the one thing that I've learned, because there's so many things that you could actually, you know, get focused on and or distracted on is, is not to just obsess over competition per se, right? You need to keep an eye on it, make no mistake. That's right, but yeah. You need to just be very focused on, on what you have on hand, like, you know, Solve pain points for your customers. Yeah, I think that's right. Niche it out. Niche it out. Can you tell me some of the looking back on your entrepreneurial experience? What would things would you've done differently in start going back all the way to the beginning? You mentioned you know the bootstrap was. Did you feel like that was maybe a mistake? Would you have tried, or was that actually part of the journey, and you actually got a better deal because you had an actual product when when you first got funded? It's a really good question. I so again, bear in mind that we, we are based in Hong Kong and it's a very conservative environment. It is a very different story than say you know Silicon Valley, even mainline China for that matter, right? Where there's I think a lot more appetite for risk, a lot more appetite mm-hmm. for venture investing at a very early stage. If I were to do it all over again, especially in fintech, which is as you can tell, right? I gave you the numbers before. It's very capital intensive, right? Mm-hmm. If I could do it again, knowing what I know now, I would try to raise first a substantial chunk of money and then go to market. So, you know, being stealth for a much longer period of time and then, and then come out. The reality, however, is that unless, you know, you have a sugar daddy or sugar uncle that basically, you know, uh, gives you the, uh, the runway, which is never really a good story in my experience, you are really going to struggle to be able to do that as a first-time entrepreneur in, in you know, in, in kind of fintech or tech, right? Uh, yeah. I, I don't count my asset management experience as being necessarily relevant to, to the tech world. The, so I don't know that they really would have had the choice. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's right a passage of the sorts um, that, that you need to go through. If the environment were to be different, um, I don't know, maybe Silicon Valley, for example, I think definitely a lot more aligned and, and definitely would raise first. So that basically you have 
you know, that there's two things. One is that you don't have to, you know, completely obsess about making ends meet, though that can be very good in terms of making sure that you decide what not to do, all right? Because the, the byproduct of having too much money uh, is just you get distracted in too many things. So that's one. But perhaps more to the point, you find bigger and better partners faster because you got like a float, right? The, you know, you got to yeah. deposit with somebody or some institutions and they're going to make a return on that. They will want your business. Yeah. So, so you're part of a bigger league, a bigger fish effectively for, for those, uh, those partners. That's the reality of banking ultimately. Yeah. A any downsides that you've, that you've experienced having some uh, being VC backed? Is there any pressure for you to sort of you know, drive the team harder, you know, you're sort of, you have investors that you have to answer to, maybe a loss of freedom, any any uh, concerns with that? I personally don't feel like that, maybe because, you know, it was really hard right, to raise that, that VC money, but in the end, you, I think I'm very proud of this, uh, end up aligning with people who are like-minded, right? So mm -hmm. the board of directors, which is predominantly made, aside from, from uh, the founders, predominantly made of the VCs, they really keep me on my toes in the sense that they really are very balanced. Uh, I, I really, really welcome that because they push when they need to push and they, they, they make me, you know, like take a deep breath when I need to as well. And, and I, I really value that. So it's at the end of the day, not because they're labeled a VC. At the end of the day, a VC ultimately is a group of people, right? It's yeah. who those people are on your board and or interact with your company and how do you get along with them. You know, there's this, this famous saying that when, when you need to choose your VC, if you, if you have such a choice, which I, interestingly, I did, the, the saying goes, you know, just imagine that you're, you're like in the days when you, we used to travel, if you remember that, uh, you're stranded in an airport during a snowstorm. Mm -hmm. Who would you want to be stranded and sitting next to in a, in a bench in an airport with? And, and mm -hmm. the answer to that question will, at least it did in my case, really help you in choosing which VC you're going to go The VC. The, yeah. Which VC do you want to be stranded on in, yes. in the airport with? Okay. I think that's a good analogy. Very good. Uh, David, we're getting close to the end of our time. So I want to thank you very much for ha having coming on the show. Pre appreciate it. And you've shared some good stories, some good war stories. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? Uh, anything about the product or, or anything at all uh, that you can uh, tell our listeners about who might be sitting on the fence uh, thinking about starting maybe uh, their own app? Yeah, sure. So uh, first of all, go and visit our website. It's neatcommerce.com. And if you uh, want to reach out, it's uh, david at neatcommerce.com on email or you can find me on LinkedIn. More than happy to you know provide guidance to anyone who's looking to do cross-border trade effectively as an SME. Plenty of material and and, and uh, blogs and guidance on our website, so take a look at that. And Jordi, thanks very much for your time. I had great fun. Okay, pleasure. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host Jordi Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software big break could be right around the corner. <music>